Kitchen table, dining room table. I found out more things about my kid's life at the table than in any other place in our house. Any of you like that? More conversations around the table, more insights around the table, more laughter, more everything around the table than probably any other place in our house. I hope you had a Thanksgiving filled with family, fun, and food. How many are still eating the food part? <laughs> My kids surprised us by coming in for Thanksgiving. We didn't expect it. We found out a couple of weeks ago they were coming in, so we rearranged everything. I wasn't even able to stay because I wanted so bad to see them on Wednesday night. But I'm telling you, it was incredible. We transitioned from Thanksgiving to Christmas in one day just so we could do it all and everything we could possibly do in that short span of time. But when they left on Friday night, I honestly heard my house go, <sighs> Any of you like that? When you think back over the years of your Thanksgiving table, let's use that for an example. Maybe it's your Christmas tables when everybody gathers in. I got to believe for every one of us in the room, or at least a few of us in the room, there are times down through the years where the table got added to. Maybe you started out with the two of you in college or somewhere along the way, and Finally, you had kids, and then the kids had kids, and family came in, and all of a sudden, you looked at yourself and thinking, wow, man, this table's really full. And you started adding chairs and adding room or another room. I Hopefully, none of you have had to eat at the little kids' table. That's the one that everybody hates the worst. And then every once in a while, there are probably a few of you in the room who had to remove chairs from the table. You look back over your life, and you realize it's not quite as full as it used to be. We've had to remove some chairs, or maybe every once in a while you leave one empty. It just kind of signifies the fact that it used to be filled with somebody who brought joy and laughter and a lot of fun or a part of your family, and now all of a sudden the family has gotten smaller and time has marched on, and we've had to take a chair or two away. A couple of you in the room may think this, and I don't want you to raise your hand. But when you think down through the years and look at the people who have come to your table, maybe not how you started out, but where you are now, and you look around that table, have you ever thought to yourself, I never expected them here? I, I never saw her here. I didn't think they would be here. I had no idea they'd be a part of our family. Now, for those of you who are raising daughters, that's the scariest time of life with who's going to get added to the table. And if I'd have put my two son-in-laws in a blender, it couldn't come out any better. So I'm thrilled with who they are. But not all, of you, not all of you have that. And so now you find yourself either having your kids not come back like they used to, and Mary's does change everything. All of a sudden now they've got a couple of houses to go to or three houses to go to and a couple of Christmases, and it's not quite the same. But maybe for a couple of you in the room, you look around that table and you thought, I never saw them here, but now they're a part of our family. Now, move from that table to the Sunday morning experience. How many of you, when you came in this morning, don't raise your hand, but how many of you, when you came in this morning, looked at the parking lot to see who was driving what car? Or who's wearing what? Or how they look, or how they dress, or even have this thought, how did they get here? Not geographically, not how they drove here, but whew, they're part of our family. How'd they get here? 
Now, none of you may think that at all, and hopefully you don't, because to be honest with you, that's the most awesome part about the family of God, is that it's so different and so unique and many times so eclectic that it can be incredible. And when it's not, it doesn't quite reflect the nature and wonder of God's diversity. Take your Bibles out, your Kindle, your iPad, your iPhone, and turn to James chapter 2. Whoever thought we'd say all those statements? <laughs> Whatever you have it on, I want you to be in James chapter 2. You have sermon notes in your bulletin this morning, so take them out. We've been dealing with James, and we're going to deal with him one more Sunday, and I'm going to finish James chapter 2 next week. When I planned this series uh, about three months ago, I thought, I've got 10 weeks between finishing one and Christmas. I'll get it all done. Said to my son-in-law, who's also in ministry over the weekend, I'll be lucky to finish chapter two in those 10 weeks. Just been a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed it. I know I've had fun. And then we're going to set it aside for a while, pick it back up in January, and spend those three Sundays, 10, 17, and 24, on a Christmas series. We decided this year we're going to celebrate Christmas Eve on Christmas Eve. Is that cool or what? So we're going to be here in the morning, 9, 10, 45, and 1, 30 in the afternoon. We've been dealing with James, who I, I, I love, one of my favorite books. He's honest. He's a straight talker. Doesn't beat around the bush. He tells the truth. Paul, an associate of his, has these powerful run-on sentences that sometimes can go for three or four verses. And if you have some translations, it feels like half the chapter is one sentence. James gets to the point. Like his half-brother Jesus, he very clearly states, if you're a follower of Christ, it's going to be evidenced in your lifestyle. If you claim to follow Jesus, others will notice. It'll be evident. Maybe for some more than others, but you won't be what you used to be. You'll see a video testimony of that next Sunday morning in a very surprising way. Just so you know, if you're a follower of Christ, an identification with Jesus, a disciple of Christ, your life is dramatically different. It is different. And others notice that and recognize it. Remember, he's not saying you earn your salvation by the things you do. Ephesians very clearly states that. We've been saved by grace so that no one can say, look what I have done. Look what I've deserved. But once you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a definite different outlook on life. You think different. You act different. You live different. And people can tell. Now, unfortunately, for centuries, the church has taken that concept and made it into a list of do's and don'ts. These are the things you do now that you're a follower of Christ. These are the things you don't. And if you don't do these things, you won't be identified as a follower of Christ. And if you do do those things, you probably aren't like us. And that was never the intention at all. James basically says authentic, genuine Christianity does change you. Not into a list of do's and don'ts so that you follow the list or check off the list. It becomes part of who you are. Your attitude changes. Your attitude toward trials and uncertainty of life in chapter 1. Now you recognize with Christ, these things come as a way of helping me grow in my relationship with God. It deepens my faith. I don't like them. I love how James starts out. Consider it all joy when you go through difficult trials. I want to say you consider it joy, James. I don't right now. But he said if you're willing to allow it to do its work, you'll be amazed at what God will do. But when I see it that way, then I don't ignore them. I don't run from them. I don't get mad over them. I recognize they serve a purpose. James says your attitude about wealth changes. 
You don't have to have a lot to be okay. You don't have to have a lot of things and be really wealthy to be okay. You are okay just because of who you are in Christ. He said, your attitude about sin and temptation is going to change. Instead of blaming everybody else for where you are, or even with the audacity that no one can believe that you would blame God, you take responsibility for your sin, you take responsibility for your mistakes, you take responsibility for what's happened, and you correct the behavior. Your attitude toward the Word of God changes. I want to read it. I want to be in it. I want to understand it. I want to grow. I want to become more like Jesus. And so I'm going to be in the Word of God. I recognize that it has so much to teach me. Your attitude in their sermon notes toward people in chapter 2 changes. Now, sadly enough, sometimes church's attitude toward others who are different and even Christians to one another takes a turn for the worst. Chuck Swindoll in his book, Dropping Your Guard, said, Sad to say, but some people feel more welcome in a local bar than they do in church. And it doesn't make sense. A couple of weeks ago, we left off in chapter 1 where James used the analogy of a mirror. Seeing the Word of God as who it was and what it is and helping me understand clearly how God views me. I'm a child of the King. God loves me like crazy. He really does genuinely care about me. And so when I look in the Word of God and I don't feel good about myself or anything else, I look in the Word of God and I see how valuable and precious I am. That I am God's workmanship. That I am amazed by the master craftsman has created me. And when I don't feel good about myself or don't feel good about where I am in life, I take a really good look at myself in the mirror of God and the mirror of God's Word and I think, ah, okay, that's how you see me. And that's how I want to see me. And, of course, we take an honest look at ourselves. Who we are in Christ, who we need to be in Christ. Which, when I take that honest look, I find some things in my life I may need to change. Some outfits that aren't who I am in Jesus. And so Paul said, look, I need you to take off that, some of that other stuff that you used to do. You know, the anger, the wrath, the black, that filthy communication out of your mouth? No more. Take it off. Now that you're a follower of Christ, quit lying to one another. And now that you're a follower of Christ, let me tell you some things you need to put on. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another, which means give each other a break. Nobody's perfect. You'll be disappointed every once in a while with pretty much everyone at some point or the other. But give one another a break. Bear with one another. Forgive for heaven's sakes. If anybody has a grievance among you, Forgive as you have been forgiven. And over all of that, put on love, which binds them all together. And here the Word of God has the power to confront us. It has the power to correct us. It has the power to call us to repentance. Certain types of behavior. To be able to understand what I need to do in that, I need to take a good look in the mirror. So how do I know when I need to change clothes or attitude or behavior? Well, you look in the mirror and see if there are now things I need to change about my attitude toward people. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. And you show special attention to the man with the good clothes and say, man, have I got a great seat for you right here at the head of the table. 
And you say to the other guy, you, you stand over there somewhere. You don't belong at our table. Or if you want to come over, at least sit at my feet. Why would you do that? Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? He's referring back to what? Sermon on the Mount. He heard it. He may have not even been a believer in Jesus at that moment, but he heard it. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they the ones dragging you to court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, then you'll love your neighbors yourself. And if you do that, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Which is why we obviously need Jesus. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shouldn't murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker still. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Because mercy will always triumph over judgment. Philip Yancey's a fascinating writer. He's written a number of books, What's So Amazing About Grace. And in that book, he starts by talking about an opening chapter in his other book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He said, long after I shared that story, it continued to haunt me. I heard it from the friend who works with down and out people in Chicago. The story goes like this. It's a true story. A prostitute came to me in very bad condition. She was homeless, sick, and unable to buy food for her daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me her story. I could hardly bear hearing it, to be honest with you. I had no idea what to say to the woman. At last, I said, have you ever thought of going to church? He said, I'll never forget the look on her face. Church. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling bad enough about myself. That only made me feel worse. What struck me, he said, about my friend's story is that women much like this fled toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about themselves, the more likely they saw Jesus as a refuge. He concludes with this thought. Evidently, the down and out, those who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth, aren't always welcome among those who are claiming to be his followers. <laughs> the sermon could end there. The root idea of favoritism in verse 1 in this chapter in Hebrew means the lifting of the face. The Romans saw the poor as having no face value, always with their head down, and favoritism means they kept it there and you, you leave them in that context. Personal favoritism means you determine the value or worth of someone solely based on what you see. And on the basis of what you see and the service of things, you've made your determination as to how valuable they are. Now, you certainly can understand that this applies to how we can elevate someone based on how they dress, where they live, the kind of house they have, or the job they do. We can do it to others. We can do it to ourselves based on what we do for a living. I heard people when I say, what do you do for a living? Well, use the phrase, I'm just a... And then add to, why would you do that? Well, I'm just... And they say, I've asked kids that when they're going to college. What college are you going to go to? And they'll... Demean it by saying, well, I'm just, I'm just going to 
And I know it. It's a great place. It applies to how we elevate one gender over another, one age group over another, one race over another. Kids do it all the time. Talk to your kids about this very subject and see if they face it in school at all. How cool kids seem to be different than ordinary kids, how athletes seem to be better than the geeks, and on and on the list goes. James picks up on this theme in your sermon notes that's all over the New Testament that says to us, partiality, prejudice, or favoritism is not a matter of choice or a difference in the way we look at people. It is a sin. No no amens at all. Partiality, prejudice, and favoritism is not a matter of opinion or the difference in the way we look at people. It is a sin. Now, there are a number of reasons why we shouldn't do that. Elevate people or value people solely on what we see in the surface. One is, to be honest with you, we'll get it wrong most of the time. Now, I get the first impression thing. We say that all the time. You always want to make a good impression. You want to make a good first impression when you go for a job or wherever that may be. And I get all of that. And sometimes that can be valid. And sometimes, if we're really honest, it's not always accurate. We'll miss getting to know who they really are. We'll base it based on what we see and miss that real, genuine, wonderful person inside because we made a determination about their value based on what we saw on the outside. If you and I make our determination about someone's value based on appearance and looks, on gender, on clothes, on age, or the color of their skin, it is wrong. Making a determination about someone's value based on outward appearances is wrong. Now, notice James doesn't use the term rich or poor. He defines the differences based on attire. You in fine clothes, you get to sit here. You in unfine clothes, you sit over there or go over there somewhere. But one of the clearest markers of status in Rome was the attire. We would define it in a hundred different ways or maybe a dozen different ways, but to them, the status level was defined by attire. And he wants us to understand that when we do that, based on what we see in the outside, we're doing a disservice to God and a disservice to them. But the main reason it's wrong is in verse 1. It's wrong because I will be wrong most of the time. But verse 1 says this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. The original translation of verse 1 is this. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. The glory of God, seen all through the Old Testament, speaks of the manifest presence of God. When they built the tabernacle, when they had the tent, when they were walking toward the new promised land and God was with them in the uh, cloud by day and the fire by night, and every once in a while they would come to those moments and, and God would just show up in incredible ways. And everyone knew it. Mount Sinai, every once in a while you would see those moments in the Old Testament where God's glory just manifested itself and rested on a place and the mountain shook and everything around it was unreal. Isaiah chapter 6 that I quoted a few weeks ago. King dies, Isaiah goes to church like he always did, thinking it's going to be church like it always was, and God showed up in incredible ways. And there was absolutely no doubt God was there. I don't know if you've had times in your life where you really felt the incredible presence of God. Not because we know God comes when we celebrate or God comes when we sing or God dwells in a praise of his people. Not because somebody did an invocation. We don't do them here because God shows up when you do. We don't have to invite him. He's here. But you recognize in that moment God manifested himself. Not 
mentally, not theologically, but experientially. I don't know if you were here Wednesday night, but man, for me, it was one of those moments. I couldn't stay for it all, but I had to be here for a period of time, and I'm telling you, God showed up. It was incredible. There are times in your life when the manifest presence of God is absolutely visible, and you know it. But what you need to know is that it's always been, and always is, and always will be in Jesus. A few weeks from now, we're going to celebrate the Christmas story, and one of the verses that we often use or refer to is the word became flesh. From John, that word, from the beginning was God, actually came and dwelt among us. God took on skin. The God that we wondered about, the God that we were curious about, the God that we thought, I wonder what he is like somewhere out there, became one of us, took on the form of an individual, and we saw him. Peter said we felt him, we touched him. We were with him. We were with God. And that visible presence of God was there. The glory, it says in that verse, John 1, 14, we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. What I believe in your nose, James is saying is this. You cannot hold onto the presence of Almighty God in your life who is Jesus and your personal prejudice or favoritism at the same time. They don't go together. It doesn't make sense that you can hold on to your faith in Christ and still be the kind of person that determines the value and worth of someone based on what you see. They don't go together. You cannot hold both. You've got to drop one or the other. Prejudice in your notes is totally inconsistent with the gospel we preach. It is inconsistent with the reason Jesus came. It is inconsistent with the reason Jesus died. One of the most powerful verses in the Old Testament is in 1 Samuel 16 where says, people look on the outside, God looks on the heart. Now, to do that, you may need a new set of eyes, or you may need a new heart. God is no respecter of persons. Whosoever will may come. Everybody has a seat at the table, regardless of the differences, regardless of how they look, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they've come from. Everyone is invited to God's banquet table. God says, I don't want anyone to perish. I want the king, I want the pauper, I want the rich, I want the poor, I want the Asian, I want the African, I want the male, I want the female. James would say, how can you possibly determine the value of someone and whether or not they have a seat at God's table solely based on what you see? All over the New Testament, as you see God's grace and mercy revealed to everyone, you can't help but notice that God breaks down all the barriers and all the walls between people. No longer do you see racial barriers, cultural barriers, social distinction, and gender differences. Paul said, in Jesus, there's no more Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Jesus tore all those walls down. Don't you dare put them back up and claim to be a follower of Christ. The body of Christ is so wonderfully diverse. Do you realize you could be sitting beside somebody this morning who theologically doesn't think exactly like you? Got to watch them. Could be. But somebody sitting near you thinks a little bit different than you. We're so wonderfully diverse. Look around. We're incredibly diverse but not as diverse as what God's world really looks like and what God's family is all about. We are somewhat a reflection of our community, and I get that, but we are not near as diverse and wonderfully diverse as the family of God. 
Now, just in case they would take it lightly, you know, James, it's not like we committed murder for heaven's sakes. Look at what he says in verse 9. But if you show favoritism, you still sin. Consequences may be different. The impact may be different. They're both sin. So don't tell me, well, we didn't do that one. If you did this one, it's a sin. And you're convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. The glory of God is diminished when people who call themselves followers of Christ look down on people because of what they see. If we treat someone as special because they're rich and look down on someone because they're poor, we're going to have a hard time fully letting the God of Scripture be reflected in us. You may look at a rich person and think they're okay by what you see, but overlook totally the fact that they may be deeply hurting inside. If you're not careful, you can look at a poor person who you think has all kinds of problems because they're poor, and they may be the most pleasant and sometimes the most incredible, content people in the world. But if you've made your determination based on what you think you see, most likely you're wrong. And if we're not careful, the attitude that James is concerned about here then spills over into everything we do for show or looks. And soon all that matters is how I look on the outside and never really deal with the deep stuff down inside the soul. And then we parade our piety like we've got a corner on Jesus. You also have a hard time taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth because we'll determine the value of someone based on what we see. You'll have a very hard time being a part of the CMA that takes the gospel of Jesus Christ to every place they possibly can, to every tribe and every language and every tongue and every people because that's who God wants at his table. Some of us may be able to understand a text from a rich man, poor man kind of vantage point or maybe even based on a tire. But what about ethnic diversity? What about physical diversity and physical differences? I go back to Martin Luther King's famous words, I have a dream that someday my children will have a day when they won't be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I grew up in a context, and the CNMA started in a context when Italians and Irish weren't welcome into the family of God. I grew up as a hunky. People told me that. There was a guy who still, two years ago, wouldn't sell land to my dad or my grandfather who wanted to expand our farm a little bit, who said, I told you when your dad was here, I told you, get off my land, you dirty hunky, and don't ever come back. Two years ago. But that story pales in comparison. It shouldn't even tell it on a Sunday morning compared to how people of different ethnicities Hispanics and African Americans have been treated by Caucasians. It happens all the time in the world that you and I see on TV every day. Sometimes we can do it in ways that are obvious, sometimes in ways that aren't so obvious. People with addictions, people who are incarcerated, and we think they deserve it or think they've brought it on themselves and really don't have any hope and will never get out of it when there are people in many cases lost and dying for an answer to find Jesus, the hope that they need, that you and I have. We can do it with kids that are different than us. I do it every once in a while with a kid whose pants are halfway down, their hat on sideways, and I want to say, pull your pants up, turn your hat right. And he could be one of the greatest kids on the planet. Or he may be lost, and someone who so desperately needs Jesus 
who sent his one and only son to die on a cross for that young man or that young woman's life. In your notes, determining the value of someone based on what you see, you will totally diminish your discernment. You will dishonor people, and you will dishonor the glory of God. Determine the value of someone based on what you see. You'll totally diminish your discernment. You'll dishonor people, and you will dishonor the glory of God. Two quick action principles. Let Scripture be your standard, not the world. Let Scripture be your standard. that says everyone has a seat at the table. Not what the world says, not the exclusiveness that it sometimes makes you feel. Let Scripture be your standard, and secondly, let love be your guide. Let love be your guide. I, I had this in my notes the other day. You think James is hard on us? You ought to read John. One of the disciples of Jesus, this is what he says in 1 John chapter 4. It's in your notes. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother and sister is lying. That's pretty hard. For whoever doesn't love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's already given this, this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I don't know if you've ever looked down on people who are different than you. I don't know if you've ever been mistreated by someone because you're different. But both of them are honest, deep, sometimes emotions and sometimes ongoing deep wounds that the blood of Christ wants to cover and rescue and redeem. Couldn't think of a better way to end this time at the table than communion because essentially what he is saying is everyone who knows Christ as Savior has a seat at this table if you know Christ is your Savior it doesn't matter whether you go to this church on a regular basis doesn't matter whether you belong doesn't matter if you showed up today for the first time and came in on Thanksgiving weekend and you've never had communion before if you know Christ is your Savior you're welcome at this table if you don't know Christ as your Savior you can invite him in now Acknowledge your sin, invite him into your life, recognize that he is the answer to life, that he died on the cross so that you can have life and receive him into your life and turn your life over to him, because I'll be honest with you, he'll run it better than you anyhow. And you're invited to the table. It's incredible. This morning, what I'd love you to do, um, Dave and Pam are going to sing, come to the table, just a short version of that. And then what I'd love for you to do is when communion stores come up and they're going to give you communion while they're singing, I'd love for you to honestly look inside. You see, when the apostle describes it, he said, look, the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and the cup. He said, this is where you get life. This is where you get forgiveness, both of them in me. And then he goes on in Corinthians to say, but before you do, before you take it, look inside. Make sure the channel is open between you and God. Make sure there's no sin and prejudice. Favoritism is a sin. So clear that up. If you're on the other side of that and you've been mistreated, forgiveness and grace is what you want to receive as well. And it's also what you want to offer. Because carrying it around will eat a hole in your soul more than cancer. So while you're holding the elements and they sing, come to the table, come to the table. Sit down at the feet of Jesus. Talk to him about how you look at people, how you've been mistreated or how you've treated others. And make sure that you are honest and open and clean and vulnerable in that. And then they're just going to play quietly. Dave will, behind that, 
spend some personal time with Jesus, and then I'll come up and I'll lead us all together at the same time. So you wait till everyone is served. God, we thank you for your grace. And as we hold these emblems of that grace, you've said, remember you. And so we do. Gentlemen, will you come?
Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread, broke it, and said, this is where you get life. Took the cup and said, this is where you receive forgiveness. Every time you do this, every single time you do this, remember me. Do that as you remember him this morning. Father, I feel like one of those people at the beginning of the service recognizing that we just so want to look you in the eyes and say thank you. In the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows, the incredible journey of life, to say thank you. And here we are at the end of the service looking at what you did for us and what you gave us and what you offer us and want to say the same. For all of your grace and all of your love and all of your forgiveness, we thank you. May we be the kind of people that reflect that grace and forgiveness in the way we deal with those around us who so want to find and need what we have found in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I really do hope you had a great Thanksgiving and great time with your family this weekend. For those of you who have come in to visit us for the weekend, thank you for doing that. Hope we have given you God's grace and truth. Next Sunday morning, we're going to wrap this up at the end of chapter 2. And again, a powerful video testimony of lives that have been changed because of the gospel of Christ. If I can pray for you in any way today, I'd love to do that. God bless you. Have an amazing day. Be safe in the woods tomorrow for those of you who are going.